0: Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed from the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that He may warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead." Lord, we bow before You as we take in Your most holy Word this morning. As we seek to understand the Scriptures and the teaching of Jesus. And Father, we come to You seeking not metaphor and allegory, but truth. And we believe Your Word is truth. And we worship You now in spirit and in truth. And simply ask that however fantastic that You would direct our hearts to understand what Jesus was teaching on this most important subject. And so we ask Your Holy Spirit to guide us through in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm reading this and wondering why do they always leave off the name Van Winkle from Tombstones? Why do they do that? I wondered that as a boy. You would go to a cemetery or you would see tombstones and it always said Rip. Oh. <laughs> right? So I would see the name and I'm like, where's Van Winkle? <laughs> and I really did think that that's what it was referring to. You know the old Rip Van Winkle story, the Dutchman, the Washington Irving tale of that Dutchman who fell asleep, went up a hill, fell asleep under a tree, slept 20 years and woke up and missed the entire American Revolution. That's the Washington Irving story. And it's a great story, and it made sense to me. Rip. It's Rip Van Winkle because people are asleep in the grave. That's got to be what it's talking about. Rest in peace, Rip Van Winkle. I always thought, why not just RVW? That would be easy. you know. Rest in peace. Soul sleep. What many people believe about death is soul sleep. You die, you sleep. You die, you're buried, you sleep. And even Christians believe you die, you're buried, you sleep until the time of resurrection. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's false. Not according to this word does anyone sleep when they die. That's not what happens. I think of Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, famously musing to die, to sleep. To sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Hamlet began to worry. Yeah, it would be great to die in sleep, but what if I don't sleep? What if more happens? Hmm, got to think this one through. Indeed. The Bible uses sleep as a euphemism for death. Because that's on this side of things what it looks like to us. Someone dies, they look asleep. We use the word all the time. We say, don't they look restful? Don't they look peaceful? Well, of course they do. They're not there. (laughs) It's a shell. You know, it's the vehicle. My van is sitting in my driveway and looks peaceful right now. Because nobody's in it. It's not driving. And we have this this confused idea because on this side of things, we see someone's body after they've passed and they look asleep. Rest in peace. Rip Van Winkle. Same idea. The Word of God does not teach soul sleep. As much as the Word of God doesn't teach universalism or reincarnation or limbo or Purgatory, or Ancestral Spirits, or Alternate Timelines, or the Summerland. That's Wicca belief. You go to the Summerland. If you're a winter person, I guess you're out of luck. (laughs) The Bible doesn't teach the seven levels of Jannah and the 72 virgins of Islam. All of these ideas, you know, what they are, are the consolation prizes of mankind's making. We've got to have something after we die. There's got to be something else. And so, over the years, religions and people have come up with these alternatives, these ideas. While all along, we have had the answer. We can know what happens. Jesus teaches clearly on the subject. The Bible is absolutely clear on what takes place after we die. Now you might say, well, Rick, okay, you're saying that it's all consolation prizes of you know other religions and other people. What makes you think Christianity is any different? I've got a witness. I've got a witness. Just as Job grappled with the ramifications of his life and death back in the book of Job, the Lord asked a critical question. He said in Job 38, verse 17, Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? See, Job is going round and round about this. If you read the book of Job, and I had this originally, but it would just take us too long to go through the entire book of Job. But at the beginning of it, Job is thinking in terms of soul sleep. If I only had died at birth, never been born, just died right then and there, and then I'd be sleeping in rest and peace. But like Hamlet, he starts to think it through and think, well, maybe not. And he continues on in his struggle with life and death until finally says, Job, have you been there? You're coming up with all these ideas, all these concepts about what might be, but you've never been there yourself. How can you speak of these things? Now, you might say, well, Rick, many people have been there. Or at least they claim they have. Even in our times, recent books abound on NDEs, near-death experiences. 1975, psychiatrist Raymond Moody wrote the book Life After Life, coining the phrase near-death experiences. And it's been used ever since. People who die on the operating table and then they're resuscitated and they talk about moving into a great light, seeing a beautiful light. What you don't hear about is all of the reported instances of people who have gone through those experiences and have gone into a screaming darkness. Don't see a lot of books hitting the shelves on that. But ask a few doctors I have, and those tales come out very often as well. But Moody talked about near-death experiences, and 1992, perhaps the most famous one, Betty Eady published "Embraced by the Lights, which was embraced by many Christians. I hope not by you. Betty Eady is a Mormon. And much of her experience, her book affirms a number of LDS doctrines that are flawed where the Bible is concerned. So you might want to rethink that one. Some of you might say, well, but what about Heaven is for Real? 2010, Todd Burpo, a pastor who wrote Heaven is for Real, very, very popular book, again among Christians about Todd's son Colton, four years old, was taken into the emergency room and in an unconscious state, and it doesn't appear, I didn't read the whole book, so I don't know, did he actually die? Anybody who read it, he didn't die. He was unconscious. But in that unconscious state, we're told in the book, he came back saying that he had traveled to heaven, four years old. He had seen things he couldn't possibly have seen or or known. He began to describe things, this young Colton. He, he described what his parents were doing in the hospital while he was unconscious. Interesting, he couldn't have known that. He described meeting his sister, a sister that he didn't know he had had, a sister that was miscarried that he never knew about. And he described meeting her. He described meeting his great-grandpa, Pop, who had died 30 years earlier. He described seeing Jesus and a horse only Jesus could ride. He he described how really big God is and His chair. And people, Christians again, have grabbed hold of Heaven is for Real and said, Man, look at this, read this, got to check this out. This little four-year-old has been there and back again. It's a hobbit's tale. Not the book about the kid, but there and back again is, is a hobbit's tale, right? Have you seen the movies? There and back again. <laughs> for all the accounts, and, and hear me, I, and I, I mean no offense to, um, you know, the book Heaven is for Real. I don't know. But I know this. For all the accounts that are out there of life after death, I want more than someone who was here and been there and come back to tell us about it. I want more than that. I, I need, personally, more. Wouldn't it be great if we could hear from someone who was well-traveled both before and after life and death. Someone like Jesus. Someone who was there in the eternal realms and came to earth and then died and went there again to spiritual, eternal places and then came back and told us. Someone in whom the truth is incarnate. We chase off after all these books looking for evidence, looking for insight, looking for understanding, and we've got the book that gives it. Written by the only one who was there before, during, and after the eternal Christ. Jesus said in Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The root I came before and the descendant I came after. Only God can do that. So only God has the full knowledge, the full awareness, the full understanding, and the full capability of saying, this is the way it is. Here's the deal. Jesus opened the door to that understanding in a way that had never been explained before. But let's look back a bit. Let's understand where Jesus was at when He arrived on the scene, where the thinking was at. From the earliest days, the Hebrew word for death, for the holding place, for where you went when you died, was sheol. Sheol. Sheol, the word is interesting, it's just the place of the dead, but the root word for sheol is sha'al, and Sha'ol means to ask. Because death is always asking for the living. And that's where the concept of Sheol comes from. It is a holding place, but a holding place that is seeking for, that is asking for those who are alive to come to it. Death is hungry. Death has an insatiable appetite. Isaiah 5.14 says, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. It's just another way of saying everybody dies. Check the stats on it. They're unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> We have two that I know of in all of history who did not die. Enoch who walked with God. And Elijah who borrowed my chariot. (laughs) So only two that we know anything of who who traversed from here to there. Everyone else has died. Sheol is a hungry place. And yet, God's people from the earliest days, even all the way back to Job. And Job, I think, is probably the first book written in the Bible, by the way. Job was probably a contemporary of Abraham. So all the way back, 3,500, years ago, people believed in resurrection. They carried that, that concept. Yes, there's Sheol, but it's not forever. You die, you go there. Your spirit goes there, but not forever. Job absolutely believed he'd rise again. He wrote in Job 19, verse 26, After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Wait, what? After my body dies, there will be a day coming when in my flesh, resurrection, I will see God. That's what Job believed. Abraham... Believed in resurrection. We have a touching tale in in Genesis 23, a touching piece of history. Sarah died. Sarah, Abraham's wife. She was 127 years old when she died, the Bible tells us. In fact, it's interesting. Sarah is the only woman in all of Scripture that the Bible ever tells us how old she is.
1: I don't
0: know why. But she was 127, she died, and Abraham, the first use of this word in the Bible, Abraham wept. He wept. And then he bought a cave. He needed a burial place for his precious bride, for his wife of so many years. He bought a cave in Hebron. Hebron, still in, in Israel, of course, today, south of Jerusalem. Hebron, the cave of Machpelah. Cave of the patriarchs, still there today. I've been there. I've actually seen what they claim to be. Don't know if it's absolute, but claim to be Abraham's tomb. They're in Hebron. Machpelah, the, the name means double doors. They swing in and they swing out. The dead go in, the living come out. And Abraham believed it. Even though Abraham had been given 300,000 square miles of real estate, do you know, Machpelah and that small field was the only land in his entire life he ever bought. And he was a rich guy. He could have shelled out all kinds of bucks, all kinds of dollars to pull in land that God said, this is your land. He never did. He just believed the promise. This is my land. God's going to give it to me. But we need a place to bury Sarah. So Machpelah he purchased. Why did he do that? Personally, I think it's because in the resurrection Abraham knew there would be a day coming when he and Sarah would rise and could walk right out the double doors and into their promised land. And they will. How do you know Abraham thought he would rise from the dead? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10 tells us Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's why Abraham never built a city, never settled in a city. He was nomadic throughout the promised land, continued moving around. But we're also told in Hebrews 11.19, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. That's why he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham assumed, figured, believed, had faith that even were the knife to be plunged into his son on that altar on Mount Moriah, even if that were to happen, God will just raise Isaac back to life. That's the only explanation that he could come up with. Because Abraham, like Job, believed in resurrection. Furthermore, the Jewish people knew all about Elijah raising the dead son of the widow in Zarephath, a Gentile widow. 1 Kings 17 tells the story. Jesus refers to it in Luke chapter 4 about this widow's son. The the widow's son dies and, and Elijah in the story lays his body out on this son and Brings him back to life by the power of God. Resurrection. The Jewish people knew about one of my favorite short stories in the Bible, the dead man who was being carried out to be buried and there was an attack from a neighboring country so the people carrying him didn't know what to do so they tossed his body quickly into the tomb of Elijah or Elisha. Elisha, 2 Kings 13. And when the man's dead body hit Elisha's bones, he sprang back to life. You may recall that Elisha, the protege of Elijah, said, could I have a double portion of Elijah's spirit? God gave it to him, and so powerful was that portion that even his bones brought this guy back to life. Rick, that's fantastic. It's Bible. The question is not whether you believe me. The question is whether you believe him and his book. And the Jewish people did. David and the prophets knew with certainty that there was resurrection. Believed it absolutely. David wrote in Psalm 16, verse 10, "...you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay." Isaiah 26, verse 19, "...your dead will live, their corpses will rise." Note that, by the way. Keep, just kind of tuck that thought away. "...your dead will live, their corpses will rise." Do dead bodies rise? Of corpse they do.
1: <laughs> you
0: will lie You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Catch that? The departed spirits, the corpses, there's something going on here. Ezekiel 37, verse 12, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, My people, and I will bring you into the land of promise. Resurrection. Daniel 12, verse 2, Many who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. And there's that euphemism for sleep. Oh, well, see, See Rick, the Bible says it. The Bible's talking from our perspective that we see people buried as though they were sleeping. But the Bible also tells us what happens on the other side. We'll get to that. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Resurrection. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees and most of the people believed in Sheol, and they believed in a resurrection from Sheol. With the exception of the Sadducees, which didn't believe in a resurrection, which is why they were? Sadducees. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. We're all on page with that. Sadducees, by the way, they did believe in an afterlife. They did. They just rejected the idea of bodily resurrection in favor of spirits going into Sheol and residing forever in gloomy darkness. What a depressing way to live your life now. I mean, think about that. That's what you've got to look forward to. Floating in gloom. (laughs) How could you ever wish somebody a happy birthday? You know? But their view of Sheol was misguided. And before Jesus' resurrection, He brings us out of the gloomy darkness and He explains Sheol literally for the first time you realize that? When we come to Luke 16, this is the first time in history anyone has said, let me give you a picture of Sheol. Let me show you what's really going on there. He opens the door and allows us to peek in and to see for ourselves. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. By the way, if you're wearing purple this morning, that's okay joyously living in splendor every day and a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores now if you think that's gross you haven't met my dog Reggie this is a dog who cannot walk by you without licking he just licks and licks and licks It's it's, it's unbelievable. You look at him and smile. He starts licking. He licks the air. You say, hey, Reggie. He goes,
1: we're crying out loud,
0: dog. I'm thinking seriously about tongue removal for this dog. He walks by and you go, oh, man. So these dogs are licking the sores of this Lazarus. And I want you to get this. This is so important. I do not believe and the Bible does not indicate that this is a parable. Jesus doesn't say it's a parable. He doesn't even indicate it's a parable. I believe what we're reading here in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, is a case history. We have a rich man. The rich man tradition names him Dives. Dives. Is it Dives or Dives. Deves. Okay, it's Latin. I don't do Latin. His name is Deves. Thank you, Rachel. Deves. Well, what's Deves? It's Latin for Rich. It's not a proper name, it's just in Catholicism and in the Latin church, it was a name given to him because he's a rich man. So, Deves. I'll get this down for second hour, thank you. We also have a poor man who is named very specifically Lazarus. A poor man named Lazarus. Now, it's not the same Lazarus as Jesus' friend Lazarus that we read about in in the Gospel of John and, and the brother of Mary and Martha. But this is a man named Lazarus. And this is the only time, if you were to say this is a parable, it's the only time in all of Jesus' parables that He ever names a character. He doesn't name characters. He doesn't give us the name of the prodigal son or his father or his brother. He doesn't give us the name of... The Good Samaritan, his name is not Sam. He's a Samaritan, so it's not just Good Sam. He doesn't name any of the characters in any of the parables. But here in this story, Jesus very specifically names Lazarus. This poor man. He describes the dogs licking the sores to show how bad, how impoverished life had become for this Lazarus, but his circumstances were about to be radically altered. Verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Who had the better funeral? The rich man or Lazarus? Now the rich man. The rich man would have had the better funeral. And we're talking about what happens on this side. Okay, We're not talking about after that. But just funeral-wise. The rich man's funeral would have been rich, lavish, King Tut-like. You know? Probably lots of people turned out that he had paid off over the years to be there, you know? <laughs> Big deal. Lazarus, poor man, dog licking his swords, would have been thrown out on the side of the road, would have been tossed into a pauper's grave. Probably buried in a mass grave, that kind of thing. Whose casket do you think was more luxurious and lavish and well appointed? It's funny. Uh, Cheryl and I talk about this from time to time, and I really, it it frustrates me that we have all the rules and regulations and 14-year-olds not being allowed to go out and pick up trash. It drives me nuts. Let us live for crying out loud. Freedom! Right? When did we go from being a free country to a regulated country? Anyway, I could go off on that. I won't right now, although I just did.
1: (laughs) This
0: whole idea of burial, from my perspective, man, get a cheap pine box and bury me in my backyard. And leave me alone. Oh no, I'm sorry, you need to spend at least ten grand. Why?
1: It's, I'm dead. You
0: know? If you want a nice expensive casket, that's okay, I don't have a problem with you spending that kind of money. Just stick me in a box and put me in the ground. Amen. Amen. <laughs> psalm 22 verse 2 tells us the following the rich and the poor meet together for the Lord is the maker of them all so regardless of how the rich man died what his funeral his casket and all of that was like or the poor man died having been perhaps tossed into a pauper's grave doesn't make any difference once the death happens both rich and poor have to deal with their maker and at that point, we are all level before the cross. Well, Abraham's bosom was a Jewish idiom for paradise. The poor man was carried off. Lazarus to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. And it's interesting, Jesus also makes clear that Abraham himself himself was there. So it's not just a euphemism. It is also the person Abraham is here in the, in the same story along with this Lazarus on a paradise side of Sheol. Wow, we didn't know that before. The Sadducees are wrong. It's not just gloomy darkness. That there is a paradise. Lazarus is there. Abraham is there. People of faith have gone there. It's also, by the way, legitimate to say that angels accompany people to the place of the dead. At least, people of faith. Because you note in the verse that the angels come and they carry away Lazarus, but it does not say that they carry away the rich man. He just ends up there. But the angels come... For Lazarus at this point this place of the dead is not heaven please understand that it is Sheol, Sheol is not heaven the Jewish people always understood that Sheol was never heaven where God is Sheol was a place of the dead where the dead go but not in the presence of God in the heavenly places it's a waiting place Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, speaking of angels, says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will, note this, who will inherit salvation? So that's part of an angelic role, is to minister to those who will inherit salvation. And in this case, picking up Lazarus and giving him a ride to Sheol. The rich man doesn't have any such. Guide, But what Jesus shares here next is absolutely fascinating. Verse 23, In Hades he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He sees Abraham there, which tells us something. Abraham is not stuck back in the cave of Machpelah. Abraham's physical shell, his body, yeah, but Abraham himself is not there. Abraham is in this paradise side of Hades, of Sheol. His spirit, which by the way, is who we really are. Your spirit is who you are. You want proof of that? Think about people you know well. Think about this next time you run into someone that is a good friend or family member, and think about, do you even notice their physical appearance anymore? I know this to be true because there have been times I've walked in the door and looked in the mirror after a Sunday and realized there were bats in the cave. (laughs) Which is heightened by the fact that I'm sitting up here and people come up to talk and look right up my
1: nostrils. (laughs) And
0: I say to my wife, Cheryl, why didn't you tell me about the bats? And she's like, what? I I didn't see that because she doesn't look at my appearance. Cheryl is as surprised as I am when a child wanders up, it still happens sometimes, and they say, what happened to your lip? You know? (laughs) And I've asked her before, do you even notice the the scars? No, I don't even see them. Because once we've gotten beyond the physical introduction, we see each other by our spirits. We know each other by who we really are. That's why, and my mom asked me this yesterday, well, we recognize people in heaven. Well, apparently the rich man looks across and recognizes Abraham. Recognizes Lazarus. We know that Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah up on the mountain of transfiguration. Why? Because we see each other spiritually. That really is how we see each other even now. We look beyond the physical. And so Abraham is there. Now the rich man, by the way, note this, was not in torment because he was rich. Because something else to recognize is Abraham was rich too. Abraham, the Bible describes, was a very, very wealthy guy. Massive flocks and herds. Massive servants. He was a very blessed man by the Lord. He had much in terms of wealth and riches, and yet he's in paradise, and the rich man, Dives is in torment. And it's not because he's rich. We need to get that. The problem, we talked about this last week, was in how he used his wealth. And the rich man who was in torment used his wealth for self-indulgence, used his wealth for selfishness, used his wealth, invested his wealth in this life and not in the days to come. Verse 24. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And Jesus here opens it wide, gives us a stunning picture of Hades, which is just the Greek word for Sheol. Same waiting place. And Jesus says, look at this, I want you to understand. He absolutely and unequivocally erases the idea of soul sleep. Abraham's soul is not in the cave. Lazarus' soul is not in his body. Neither is the rich man's. They all go to Hades, they all go to Sheol, but there in Sheol we have a very clear picture. Reincarnation, by the way, is right out. (laughs) All these other concepts of death are lost when you get to Luke chapter 16. Because Jesus says, I want to be clear. Let me explain to you. Let me tell you what it's like. By the way, note this, Hades is also not hell. It's not hell. People use the, the phrase Hades and hell or Sheol and hell interchangeably. It's not hell. Hell is far worse. Hell is a place, hell is described in the Scriptures as the lake of fire. Hell is where Hades is thrown. As you'll see in a few minutes. That's the last, the final death, the second death. Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. So that's hell. Hades is a temporary place. Jesus never uses Hades and hell interchangeably, ever. He talks about one or talks about the other. And so here in Hades, here's the picture, get it real clear, on one side of Hades there is a paradise, there is a place of comfort, referred to here as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, and it is a place where those who die in faith go to wait, waiting their salvation, waiting their redemption, and then on the other side, torment, a place of torment and darkness where those who died in rebellion having separated themselves from God that's where their spirits would go to wait and in between is a great chasm and you can't cross from one to the other and that's the picture not Pastor Rick the picture Jesus gives us of this waiting place both sides reflected a greater future fate That is until Jesus died. Now understand, the picture that Jesus just gave us is pre-cross. It's pre-death of Jesus. So even now, as we sit talking about this, when Jesus described Hades as paradise and torment, what He described was Hades up to that point. But it is not Hades today. Let's figure this one out. Here we go. Bibles up. When he died in the brief time between his death and resurrection, the first thing Jesus did was he exited this world for Hades. Jesus did not go to hell. Jesus went to Hades. Jesus went to Sheol. How do we know that? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. A couple of books to the right of Luke. And if you're taking notes, there's three things to know about what Jesus did when He died because this informs our understanding about death today. When Jesus died, number one, He exited this world for Hades. Acts chapter two, picking up in verse, oh, we'll pick it up in verse 22. Peter is giving this great first sermon on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem. And He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. I love how Peter starts this sermon, by the way. He lays out the facts. He goes straight to Jesus. He says, if you want to know what this is all about, we got to start with Jesus. That's why I said this regarding death right now. That's why even Colton Burpo, the four-year-old child who, who claims to have seen heaven and had visions and understandings of this, that's fine, that's all well and good. I don't want Colton's word on the matter, I want Jesus' word on the matter. Amen. Because Jesus is the one set before her, before, before us in history and in fact as the one who has come from and gone on to. And so Peter lays it out, talking about Jesus. You know Him, you saw Him, you saw the miracles, the wonders, the signs. You know this, verse 23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, so it wasn't just an accidental death, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, and here Peter quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8-10, through I saw the Lord always in my presence, for He is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now Peter quotes that, Psalm 16, and turns around and says, Brethren, we all know David wrote Psalm 16. He says, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. We go and we see the tomb of David in Jerusalem. Is it actually David? I don't know. I didn't see his bones and I didn't know him in the day so I wouldn't be able to tell you right now. Anyway, I can't even see a spirit at this point. Verse 30. And so, because he, David, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. He was not abandoned to Hades, but he did go there. His soul was not abandoned to, left to Sheol but Jesus did exit this world he traveled to Hades but did not remain there we have further biblical support for this that i will show you now he he went to Hades why because he had a twofold job to do Jesus had two things to do when he exited this world for Hades the second first thing he had to do but there's a second thing in your notes Jesus expounded judgment in Hades. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. It's right after the book of James, after Hebrews, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, first and second and third John. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Interesting verse here that Peter writes. He says, "For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having put to death in the been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit." Okay, now are you all there? 1 Peter three eighteen. Watch this verse nineteen, in which. He also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, when I come to passages like this in the Scriptures, I just grin because I know how much it freaks us all out. What? What did He do? He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And by the way, the context is in his death. When Jesus died, he exited this world for Hades. And arriving there in Hades, in Sheol, he expounded judgment. And Peter says he went he made proclamation. This is not, by the way, evangelism. He didn't go preach the gospel. Some, some have said that. Well, he went down there and he preached the gospel to try and save some people. No, no, he didn't. He went down there and he expounded judgment he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison and Peter goes on to explain something about those spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water we are probably not talking about human spirits here although we may because there were plenty of people who were disobedient in the days of Noah But in addition to human spirits, we are probably talking about angelic or demonic spirits who right now reside in the torment side of Hades and Jesus made proclamation. Jesus made proclamation. What proclamation? You've lost. And I have won. And I claim the victory in my death. So just in case anybody was missing... Whatever the case may be as to who this is, these spirits of disobedience, what we need to know, again, was that Jesus' proclamation was not evangelism, it was exposition. He was declaring judgment. And I think at that time, and this is just my surmise, that I think at that time He was sealing up the torment side of Hades. This is it. He's sealing it up for the day of judgment. And when I say sealing it up, I don't mean sealing it up that no one else can get in. I mean sealing it up because anyone who gets in will never come out until judgment day. Judgment day? Yeah, we got to go there. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Keep going to the right. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 5. John is writing, he says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. What is the thousand years, gang? The millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ. The thousand years mentioned six times in Revelation chapter 20 of Jesus coming back to earth and ruling and reigning from Jerusalem for a thousand years. The saints rule and reign with Him. The saints being the church. Those who die in faith in Jesus or who are caught up when He calls. So a thousand years after that thousand years, note this, the rest of the dead do not come to life. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part of the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What is the first resurrection? It is the resurrection to the millennial kingdom. Okay, The first resurrection is for all those who die in faith in God resurrected for the millennial kingdom. This would include Abraham. This would include the saints of Israel. This would include David and Daniel and Ezekiel and all those Elijah and Elisha who have gone before. And they would be, well, Elijah, you know, doesn't have to be resurrected, I guess. But all of those who have gone before are now resurrected for the millennial kingdom. That's the first resurrection. That's the good one. That's the one you want to be a part of. But verse 11, skip down. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. No place was found. What does that mean? Sheol is finally completely shut down. Verse 12, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. This is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, and I've shared with you before, the dead that are talked about there will all end up in the lake of fire. Because this is the final judgment, which is a judgment of deeds. It is a judgment of those who say, I'm good enough, and I want what I've done in life, I want this to be my testimony. I want to stand before God and I want my witness to be how I lived my life. And the Lord is going to give every single person their day in court. What this means is that at at this moment right now for us, half of Hades remains open for business. Half of Hades is still receiving those who die. The torment side of Hades is still there. According to Scripture, the spirits of those who die in rebellion, who die without Jesus, even those who are the good people who say, I'm good enough, then you have one place to go right now. When you die, you go to the torment side of Hades, the waiting place. Why do they go there to wait? Until this second resurrection where they have their final day in court. And God, who is completely fair, will allow everybody there say their final day. Why? Why? They're resurrected to be judged, again, based on their deeds. The book of deeds is opened up. And the book of life, God, is completely fair. But those who are resurrected in this second resurrection are resurrected to say, Hey, I want you to look at me and judge me, Lord. Let me just ask a show of hands. How many of you here want to be judged based on every particular thing you've done in your life? And yet, lots of people do. Lots of people, when it comes to this whole issue of Jesus and faith and the Bible and Christianity and all this, they say, "I'll just wait and see. I'll, God and I will work it out." You know, we'll have a conversation, and I'll show them. Yeah, I know I messed up over here. We just won't look at that, Lord. We're not going to include that. And you need to understand that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all that God cannot abide sin there there is no room for even the slightest misstep what are you saying Rick I'm saying we need grace every single one of us desperately need grace I am not good enough and I'm a pretty good guy mostly (laughs) I can't get Dive's name right but other than that I'm a pretty good guy What about Lazarus and all those who were on Abraham's side? And this is the good news, gang. Number three, Jesus, not only did He exit this world for Hades and He expounded judgment in Hades, this is where it's going, this is what's going to come, but Jesus, number three, emancipated the captives from Hades. Turning your Bibles now back to Ephesians. Go to the left, Ephesians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 7. Guys, are doing great. Here we go. Verse 7, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, But to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Hallelujah. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul explains, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he has also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. What does that mean? Paul, <coughs> to answer that, we got to go further back. i got to take you back to the days of David. and Back to another psalm that he wrote that is a psalm about ascension. You don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to, it's Psalm 68. Psalm 68. From Ephesians 4, we go back to Psalm 68, because where you see in Ephesians 4 the, the small caps, this is a quote directly from Psalm 68 that Paul is now referring to. So Psalm 68, David wrote it, it's written to commemorate the bringing up of the Ark of the Covenant as he brought it into and up to Jerusalem to rest there on the hill on Mount Moriah where eventually the temple would be. So David wrote this as a song, literally a psalm of ascension, a psalm to commemorate that day, to sing on that day. In verse 15 of Psalm 68, a mountain of God. Is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. And yes, he is talking about Jerusalem. That's the mountain God has chosen. Verse 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as at Sinai, in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. And what David is describing when he writes that is his conquest of Jebus. What's Jebus? Jerusalem. Jerusalem that had been overtaken by the Jebusites, nomadic people, but but they settled, they dwelled in Jerusalem. And David came along, and at the Lord's desire, conquered Jerusalem. And called it then the city of David, and Jerusalem became that dwelling place that God desired for Himself. David conquered Jebus. Historically, that's what Psalm 68 is talking about. David and his men getting up into Jerusalem. There's a whole fascinating story. Uh, First Chronicles chapter 11 talks about it. How uh, Joab shinnied up the shaft up into Jerusalem. And how all of then David's men were able to conquer and defeat the Jebusites. They took captives. And so that's what he's talking about. You have led captive your captives. The Jebusites. And, and it says that you have received gifts among men. You've received gifts. What? Plunder. David conquered Jerusalem, he plundered Jerusalem, he received gifts, he took captive a host of captives and that's the historical ramifications of Psalm 68, but it has prophetical meaning as well. Paul points out that Psalm 68 is also a prophecy of a far greater ascension, the ascension not of David to Jerusalem, but of the Son of David to heaven. And Jesus in His ascension, Paul applies it this way. Again, in Ephesians 4.8, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. He didn't receive gifts. He gave gifts. Jesus turned it around. So who are the host of captives? Abraham? Lazarus? David? The spirits of all those who had been waiting on the paradise side of Hades, waiting for their redemption that was purchased by Jesus at the cross, waiting for that eternal moment where Jesus' blood would redeem their faith. And when that happened, Jesus exited the world. He died on the cross, went down to Hades. He expounded to those spirits of disobedience what had taken place, what had gone on. And then He led captive a host of captives. All those on the paradise side went home with the Lord Jesus. Their spirits residing with Him even now. Isaiah 61 verse 1 was literally fulfilled by Jesus when He said, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Those who were held in Sheol, held in Hades on the paradise side. And I've said before, when this happened, Jesus goes down and He effectively shut down the paradise side of Hades. There's no use for it anymore. No need for it anymore. Why not? Because today, when a brother, when a sister dies in faith in Jesus, your spirit, who you are, goes directly home to be with the Lord. Your body goes into the pine box or the well-appointed gotta-buy-it box. (laughs) But your spirit goes home to be with the Lord. How do we know that? Paul said it, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And were I to die this afternoon, that is where my spirit would be. That is where my spirit would reside. My my body would be here. Unnecessary, like my van in the driveway, just sitting there empty. But my spirit, home to be with the Lord. For Christ's followers, get this, for those who have given their lives to Jesus, very simply believing in Him, Hades is obsolete. Death has no hold on me. And there is even greater news. I'll read this to you, or you can turn there. Last passage, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Well, we'll start in verse 50. That's a good spot. Now I say this... Oh, wait, I'll give you a chance. Are you there? 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 5, it's page
1: 1779.
0: (laughs) Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Your body can't do it. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now wait a minute, wait a minute, Rick. You said that our spirits are with the Lord, but he says the dead will be raised imperishable. It's the same word for dead here that Paul uses in First Thessalonians 4.17 when he says the dead in Christ will rise. Same word. What's the word? Necros translated literally corpses the dead in Christ the corpses will rise now in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 and you might want to check this out on your own it also says before that that when the lord comes to call the church home to call us home in the rapture we call it of the church the catching up when he comes he brings with him the spirits of those who have died He brings the spirits with Him, but then it says the dead in Christ, the corpses, will rise. What's going on here? It's the reunification, literally, of the corpse with the Spirit, but the corpse is now glorified. In the same way that you that I, in that day, should we be alive in the moment that the Lord calls us home? Our bodies will rise. Our physical bodies and our spirits will all at once be glorified, made eternal, made imperishable. And we will go home to be with the Lord forever. And so for those who have died, God has the same plan. They get their body back. It'll be glorified. Don't worry, it's not going to be like all rotten and scary looking. (laughs) The whole zombie thing is so, so human. It's such an earthly perspective. And so this takes place, Paul says, the perishable, verse 53... Well, let me go back to verse 52 in a moment. The twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead, the necros, the corpses, will be raised imperishable. And we, those who are alive, Paul was assuming he would be, will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Mm -hmm. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the deal. That if you die in Christ even now, you have the victory. Your spirit is home with the Lord. Your body in the ground, whatever, waiting until that day. Abraham, Lazarus, David, they're all home. Their spirits are with Jesus. They're in a good place. Now, anyone spraying a finger there? Dancing through the pages? Let's go back to Luke 16 and we'll finish up. In verse 27... After opening the door to this picture of Hades. Remarkable. I mean, people must have been standing there with their mouths hanging open. Paradise, chasm, and, and torment. And that's what's really going on. And he said, the rich man, then I beg you, Father, that you send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. Since he can't come across the chasm to me, please send him to my father's house for I have five brothers... In order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. I find it fascinating that the rich man in torment is now compassionate for the first time. Now he cares. Now he wishes it were otherwise, but he's thinking about his brothers back in his father's house. Send someone to send Lazarus to them. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Word of God. Moses and the prophets. The book of Moses. Torah law. The prophets. All the books of the prophets. You've got the Word. Let them hear the Word. Let them pay attention to the Word of God. And this is a great grace. Jesus granted the rich man's request. Did you know that? How did He do it? For the last 2,000 years of humanity, with this revelation of Luke chapter 16, He has given fair warning. The warning, as it were, to the five brothers becomes the warning for all people since Jesus told this parable if we're willing to read it. If we're willing to open the Word and get into it. He gives fair warning and in verse 29, Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, (laughs) that's what they need. If they see a resurrection, they will repent. But he said to them, They said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And that's true. How do we know that's true? Because Jesus did. As a matter of fact, you know what's interesting? After Jesus told this story, not long after this, within a few weeks, a man did rise from the dead. His name was Lazarus. Same Lazarus? Probably not. But Lazarus rose from the dead, and you know what they did? Within a week of Lazarus rising from the dead, a week or two after that, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill Lazarus so they could subdue what had happened. They weren't just looking to kill Jesus, they wanted Lazarus dead again. If they won't listen, Jesus says, to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen if someone rises from the dead. And the question is,
1: will you listen?
0: For all of us, are we persuaded? You see, Paul said in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. You've got to believe that God raised Him from the dead. It's not seeing Him raised from the dead. It's believing that He was raised from the dead. And if you do, you're going to join Abraham. You're going to join Lazarus and David and Job and all the rest at the relocated paradise with Jesus in heaven right now. And you don't need the word of Raymond Moody. And you don't need the word of... Betty Eady, who's out there always. You don't need more books. Christians, listen to me. We don't need more there and back again books to persuade us. We have the book of persuasion. Moses and the prophets. It's all we need. And to the Pharisees, Jesus closes out by exposing the inadequacy of signs and wonders for salvation. Which is something else we need to understand. It is not miracles that get people saved. Miracles are wonderful. The supernatural work of God is active in this world by His Spirit today. Yes, I believe in miracles of healing. Yes, I believe in miracles of resurrection. I believe the Lord is doing that. But that's not what saves people. Moses and the prophets. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves That's what stirs faith in a person's soul, in a person's spirit. For faith, Romans 10.19, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so Jesus closes out this amazing story. I think I just said parable a few minutes ago. It's not a parable. We've been conditioned to think it is. But he closes out this incredible revelation by pointing out that signs are never the key to our salvation. The Gospel is. And so we as believers are not called to be sign chasers. We are called to be messengers and to speak the message of the truth. And it's a message of life or death. And Father, I pray for the faith to speak the Word. I pray for the strength of of understanding and knowledge and wisdom and insight that comes by Your Spirit but that we might know Your Word. That we might be able to explain and express Your Word. And Father, if there's anyone this morning convicted of this, thinking of either in their own spirit or thinking of mother or father or sisters or brothers or friends who don't know You right now, may we, Father, not wallow in fear or worry or concern, but know Your Word so we can present it fairly and honestly. Fill us with Your Word. Give us Your words to speak. May our mouths be constantly proclaiming the truth of the Gospel and expounding the Scriptures so that salvation will come. Lord Jesus, I thank You for Your salvation and Your grace. And this morning as we pray, if you have never given your heart to Jesus, if these things rattle you a bit and stir you up, and you realize you want to be in His care, I invite you to pray with me today for the first time perhaps in your heart to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I believe that You are the Christ, that You are the Son of the living God. I believe with my heart and I confess with my mouth Christ raised from the dead I believe in your resurrection I believe you're coming again and I believe I desperately need you so Lord would you today forgive me of my sin cover me with your grace wash me clean as white as snow that I might be able to come home with you either when I die or when you call Save me, Jesus. It's in Your name I pray. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer with us this morning for the first time, then you have entered into a relationship with Jesus. And it's not a rabbit's foot. It's not a lucky charm. It's not something that, okay, I prayed the prayer. I'm good to go. No. You just started a relationship. Don't walk away from it. From here on out, you walk with Jesus. If you haven't been baptized, you want to get baptized soon, quickly. But whatever you do, stay with the
1: Lord. He is our hope. He is our future. He is our eternity. Amen?